kids to children's ministry. Uh, you can follow out the door right there. Kids, if you'd like to go to children's ministry, you're welcome to stay as well. Our text for today is in Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27, we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. This is really a message about developing a proper relationship with tomorrow. And tomorrow is just a stand-in for the future. So what we're really talking about today is about developing a proper relationship with the future. And what we'll find, I think, if we thought about it, is that it is super important for us as individuals to develop a proper relationship with the future. But more than that, in many respects, our way of viewing the future is sort of how others will encounter the future. Let me explain. There's a book that I have found to be probably the best leadership book I've ever written, and it's it's, it's ever written. <laughs> yes, I've written so many leadership books and, uh, by a man named Edwin Friedman, and the, 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 the book is called Failure of Nerve. And if you're in leadership in any respect, I wholeheartedly commend this book to you. But he, he talks about uh, a lot about anxiety in this book and about how it's really important not to le- allow those who are most anxious among us to sort of set the pace for an organization. Of course, they belong. Of course, we want to love them and care for them. But it's really not appropriate to let the quote-unquote weaker brother or weaker sister sort of set the pace for an organization. And I just want to read a quote to you that I think will allow me to introduce sort of what we're talking about when we talk about a proper relationship with the future. He says, today, the issues most vulnerable to becoming displacements, something that's becomes uh, sort of a stand-in for what should be there. First of all, anything related to safety, product safety, traffic safety, bicycle safety, motorcycle safety, jet ski safety, workplace safety, nutritional safety, nuclear power station safety, toxic waste safety, and so on and so on. This focus on safety has become so omnipresent in our chronically anxious civilization that there is a real danger that we will come to believe that safety is the most important value in life. It is certainly important as a modifier of other initiatives, but if a society is to evolve or if its leaders or if leaders are to arise, then safety can never be allowed to become more important than adventure. We are on our way to becoming a nation of skimmers, living off the risks of previous generations and constantly taking from the top without adding significantly to its essence. Everything we enjoy as part of our advanced civilization, including the discovery, exploration, and development of our country came about because previous generations made adventure more important than safety. Okay, so uh, he sees this as a crucial issue and the Bible, of course, seems to see this as a crucial issue as well. For the text that we're looking at today, which commends in verse 1 of Proverbs 27, not to boast in tomorrow, is just one of many texts concerning you and I developing a proper relationship with the future. I think there's basically three stances toward the future, and two of them are wholly dismissive of God and his sovereignty. The three stances toward the future, the first one being anxiousness anxiety toward the future. And the second one is the one that our text explicitly condemns, and that's arrogance, boasting toward the future. But there is this third way, and it's a way that is only uh, doable with uh, some sense that God is with us, and it's the way of adventure. Adventure is not proclaiming 
uh, confidence that we know exactly how things will work out because if we know exactly how things work out, we're not on an adventure. But it is neither, so it's not, it's not arrogant, it's not boastful, but it is neither fearful. It is essentially the movement forward into the unknown future with some sense that someone is already there and that that someone is good and is for us. Okay, so this is what we're going to think about for today. This, the relationship between these three things. Now, the first thing we're going to see, look at the text, Proverbs 27, 1 through 2. Let's read this. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. The first thing that, uh, that hit me as I got this text from the Lord, see, when I do sermon prep, there's almost always at some point early in the week or weeks pre- previously some sort of uh, magical, mysterious highlighter that falls on a particular text. And uh, I will often uh, wrestle a little with the Lord, like, you're wrong, that's not the one, or pretend that I didn't see the highlighter and so on and so forth. And, you know, it's just a process of figuring out, like, did I just make this up or is this really from God? And so this is really the first step for me in sermon prep is to figure out where's the highlighter? Where, where is God as the pastor of this people, as the great shepherd of this people? Where is God seeing this text What text is God seeing to be the text for this people? So forth. And so I saw that and I thought, here's the problem, Lord. Let me tell you why you're wrong. We do not have in this church or in many churches a great number of people who are boasting about tomorrow. We tend to have a great number of people who are anxious about tomorrow. So, Lord, uh, I I think this is not the text. It's like, nope, this is the text. Okay. I've made peace with God wanting this text to be the text. Now I've got to figure out what he's doing and what he wants to say through this text. And so uh, that's stage two. And like I said, at first blush, it doesn't appear to me anyway, you may feel differently, that we are a a people who are especially struggling with boasting in tomorrow. I think we are falling far more into what Edwin Friedman's diagnosis, diagnosis was, and that is a a love for safety, a love for security that stems from, in fact, a sort of fearfulness about the future. Now, there are many scriptures that talk about both of these things. There are plenty of scriptures that talk about boasting about tomorrow, for instance, in the book of James. And there are plenty of instances where Jesus himself deals with the issue of worrying about tomorrow. As I begin to think about it and study this more closely in scripture, I realized that these two things are actually related and not only related in a two sides of the same coin thing, but actually highly related. That anxiousness toward the future and arrogance toward the future are far more related than I first understood. Here's how I would define them first as we, as we make our way through thinking about this. Boasting about tomorrow is sort of like you imposing yourself on the future. Like you're telling the future who's boss. Okay, so you're sort of like, you're sort of bullying the future. I'm, this is how it's going to be future. Anxiety is essentially the future doing that to you. The future imposing itself, the future in all of its uncertainties. The future, the one certainty being that there, there, something's coming and I don't know what it is. So arrogance is essentially me boasting onto the future, me imposing my will onto the future. This is how it's going to be future. And anxiety is essentially the future saying, you little twerp, you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know anything. You don't know how tomorrow is going to come. 
I actually thought, you guys remember Mad Libs? Growing up with Mad Libs where you fill in the adjectives. And I want to write um, a warrior's Mad Libs where instead of like, give me a verb, it's like, give me a disease. And instead of, instead of like, you know, give, or give, instead of a noun, give me a disease. Instead of, a, you know, just a verb, give me a, a negative verb, like falling. And you write these stories full of people, full of worries, like, yesterday, Sally woke up only to discover she had cancer. <laughs> she fell. It's like, it's like that's, that's actually the way life can be. All of the blanks, all of the blanks can be quite catastrophic. Our story could pivot in any moment. And so in the sense that we are anxious about the future, the future is kind of telling us, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what's coming. You don't know how this is going to work out. It's like, it's a very relatable and understandable experience. So what's wrong with these two approaches and why are they related? Boasting is me telling the future I'm in charge and anxiety is the future telling me that it's in charge. Well, what's wrong with both of these is that God's in charge. That's, that's what's wrong with both of them. The future's not in charge. I'm not in charge. God is in charge. Now, let me show you this unexpected connection that sort of helped my thinking and understanding of this idea, and it's found in Luke 12. In Luke 12, Jesus is teaching, and someone, I think this is pretty cute in some ways, pretty Monty Python annoying and weird. He, Jesus is teaching, and someone just yells from the crowd, Teacher! Tell the, my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You know, it's just like the most like, what? <laughs> what? What is going on? This reminds me in some respects of Martha worried about many things when the Lord God is in her living room, right? It's like, you are missing the point, man. And Jesus really sees this man as having the same sort of heart struggles that Martha has in that story. And so he, he, he interrupts, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And, and Jesus goes from there, and he tells a parable. Now, just before I go into the parable, let's understand, I want my brother to divide my inher the inheritance so that I can have more money and so that I can feel more secure. This, this request is flowing out of an anxiousness toward the future position, right? So Jesus tells a parable, and what parable does he tell? Well, he tells the parable, and you probably know this one, of a rich man. Let me just read the text to you. It's in Luke 12, verse 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, there is boasting, okay? So, so this, this story begins, this story is launched because someone is anxious about the future, and then Jesus tells a parable about someone who boasts in the future. He has this plan to store up all these goods, and he's going to tell the future who's boss. He's going to tell the future who, who's boss because he has these resources that he thinks are going to get him through the next hardship or so on and so forth. He's, he's, in a, he's totally in the stance of what Proverbs 27, 1 forbids. He's boasting about tomorrow. At the end of the parable, however, Jesus says in verse 22, therefore I tell you, therefore, direct connection to what the story he just told, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And of which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So are you seeing that these two things are interestingly connected? Now let's see if we can understand what the connection is, because they're seamless to Jesus. He offers no explanation as to the connection between boasting about the future and being anxious. So let's see if we can flesh this out. Speaking of the flesh, it is a great trick of your flesh and of Satan to make you susceptible to something that I learned whenever I wrestled in high school. It's an old wrestling technique. It's basically wrestling 101, and that is if I want to move you in a particular direction, I simply have to push against you in the opposite direction. And what will happen if I push against you in the opposite direction is something inside of you, if you're not trained, will push exactly against my pushing. And what I've been doing that whole time is I didn't want you to go there. I wanted you to go over here. And so if I'm pushing you over here, you're something inside of a person just says, I don't want to go where this person's pushing me. So I'm going to apply equal and opposite force. And then all of a sudden, I just let go. And as this person's moving back this way, I'm behind them. And I'm, I'm having my will with them. And their momentum and their force is being used against them. What's going on in this connection between anxiousness and arrogance in the future is simply this. A great number of people have feel out of control. And the fleshly impulse is then to say, well, if I don't have control, let me get control. And so you move from someone who feels out of control to someone who worships control. You, feel, you have someone who has experienced burnout or has, has become very weary. And they're being pushed in the direction. They're just feeling tired and tired and tired. And they push back and say, then I will carve out massive amounts of time for me to rest. And they move from being harassed and confused to being lazy. Someone's afraid about the future. They're feeling anxious about the future. What their flesh wants to do is move from a position of anxiety to arrogance. They want to wind up on top. And so this is what our flesh is always doing. To the extent that you feel anxious about the future, you can be sure that if you don't trust God, but rather do the other thing, do the thing most natural to you, you will go toward the realm of over-control and probably succeed to some extent where you, like this man with this abundant crop, boasts about the future. So anxiousness and arrogance, they actually are just a cycle, a terrible cycle And we wind up doing this in our lives over and over and over again. And this is how someone moves from planning wisely to hoarding wealth. And this is how someone moves from uh, organizing their day to having literally no margin for anyone else. And this is how someone goes from like, I want to make sure my kids are safe to a helicopter parent whose kids are frankly, you know, like destined to be betas because they've never bumped their heads once. This is what Friedman was talking about in the introductory quote. This thing in which we, we are we absorbed by the, the reality, the fundamental reality, and that is we are little meat sacks who can take almost nothing and we're dead. And life really is like that catastrophic Mad Libs. Like the, the fill in the blanks are coming and they're going to be rough. Some of them are going to be terrible. What does an unregenerate, full of themselves, 
It's, if it's going to be, it's up to me, sin or do, with all of that uncertainty. They build towers of Babel. So they may no longer, and of course the whole little secret joke of the towers of Babel is, well, God flooded the world and killed all of us once, so let's build something tall. Let's, let's compensate for the calamities. But when you compensate for the calamities, you move from being in a position of anxiety to a position of arrogance. And then you wind up exactly where this passage proclaims. So whether you yourself today are aware of any arrogance toward the future, any boasting toward the future, I assure you, if you are aware of the opposite, you are one wrestling move away from winding up on your face and winding up in the opposite error. So that's sort of a, a brief discussion of what arrogance and anxiety have in common related to the future. But now let's talk about the third thing, the third option, where we're not arrogant about our future. We don't have some idea that like we're going to be okay because we've taken all the necessary steps. We haven't overplanned and so on and so forth. But we're also not anxious about our future where we think, you know, like it's all just coming and who knows how bad it's going to be and it could just be terrible and I could be wiped off and so on and so forth. There's a third way. There's a third way to see both of those things at some level, approach them in a measured way, and that is this word adventure. So rather than allow the future to bully us and feel anxious about, so anxious that we try to bully it back, we have this third option, which is adventure, which is really just a, a shorthand way of saying trusting God. This is, the, this is the right way. This is the way that God brings us into a proper relationship with the future. Now, look back at our text, Proverbs 27, 1, 2. Now, we've entered a, a new subset of genre within Proverbs. Back in 25, this started, and it, it, they're called the, the, the Proverbs of Hezekiah. What essentially we're doing here is Hezekiah has gathered other Proverbs of Solomon. Uh, he charged probably scribes to do this, and they, from, verse, from chapter 25 through uh, the next chapter, I believe, they, they, they put a bunch of Solomon's Proverbs together. One of the things that, the reason that's even a little significant to you is what we're beginning to see now in Proverbs are Proverbs that appear in couplets, in two verses. And that's just a unique form for this particular section of Proverbs. So, for instance, let's read the text again. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. The word boast and the word praise, the word boast in verse 1, the word praise in verse 2, it's the exact same Hebrew word. And it essentially encompasses everything we've talked about. You can think of it this way. If I substituted the word praise for make a big deal out of yourself, that would fit completely, right? Well, I could say the same thing about tomorrow. Don't let tomorrow be a bigger deal than it is. And then I would be super consistent with what Jesus teaches about tomorrows. And so it's the same word, and this, all, this, this proverb is actually together, and so you have to kind of think of it in terms of one thing going on. In fact, when it says, let another praise you, uh, let another praise you and not your own mouth, it, you could even say, about your future. And this is how I take it. Specifically, like there are plenty of proverbs that tell us to be humble and not praise ourselves and so on, but this one, it's connected to verse one, and it's sort of like, don't boast, don't, don't let someone, don't boast about your future self. Let another boast about you. And it specifically says there in verse two, let a stranger boast about you. And the word strange in the Hebrew 
It can mean all sorts of things, but it can include the thing that we don't understand, the other. And here's what I want to propose as the anecdote, as the antidote for anxiousness, wrestling with arrogance, or feeling out of control, wrestling with trying to control. What I want to propose is that there is a stranger named the Lord God, the other, the Holy One. And he is both willing and able to boast about your future. And you should let him boast about your future. You should let God praise your future. You should let God predict your future. And he is more than not only willing to do that, but he is uniquely able to do that. Theology 101, if you were going to say, what is, what is like kindergarten theology? What's the first level? And it'd be this, God can do things you can't, right? So something like that. God can do things you can't. And then we just unpack like all that that means. But what we're saying here is that God can not only see your future, God's foreknowledge is, uh, I think, in some respects, disconnected improperly in some theological traditions where they're like, God can see the future. Like, well, that's cool, I guess. Like, he knows when the cancer's coming. Sweet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, uh, when, when we make God's foreknowledge sort of like the sum total of his sovereignty, we really don't wind up with much comfort. We just, we just know that God has a longer calendar than us. Like, what, what, what utility does that bring us? What comfort does that bring us? How does that help us live our lives on adventure? and not an anxiousness or arrogance. It's like, well, that's not, when we say God foreknows things, it's because he's in charge, right? That's the key here. And so what I want to do this morning as an antidote that will overcome both the arrogance and the anxiety is I actually just want to let God boast about your future for a minute and see how this hits you when you let him do it, okay? So let's let's try that on. Psalm 115.3 says that God is, not only aware of the future, but it is his future. It says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So in his book, Trusting God, which is, I think, really a really high-end quality book on God's sovereignty, Jerry Bridges says, it seems we will allow God to rule anywhere except upon his throne. Or I think, it, I think I got that quote wrong. I think I wrote it wrong there. I think if I remember right, it says something like, he goes into this section on like, there's this modern spirituality that says God is everywhere. But the one place modern spirituality doesn't allow God to be is on the throne in charge of everything. He says like, we'll allow God to be everywhere except on his throne, ruling his universe according to his good pleasure and his sovereign will. And Bridges later adds, no plan of God's can be thwarted when he acts. No one can reverse it. No one can hold back his hand or bring him to account for his actions. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and works out every event to bring about the accomplishment of his will. Such a bare, unqualified statement of the sovereignty of God would terrify us if that were all we knew about God. But God is not only sovereign, he is perfect in love and infinite in wisdom. So God is in the perfect position, not only as the one who was willing, but the one who is able to boast about your future if you're a child of God. And he loves doing this. 
The Bible is full. We call them promises, but they're boasts. They're just fully assured, guaranteed boasts. Like he is bragging to you about what he will do for you. And he is the one who can do this. We shouldn't, we should let go of this because there's one who can do it so much better, right? And so I just want to go through a few of God's brags for you. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I just want to, I want you to hear God brag about what he is going to do for you. Concerning your salvation, he says in John 10, 28, that he holds you in his hand and nothing, not even you, can snatch you out. Also concerning your salvation, he says in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. Concerning your needs, he says in Philippians 4, 19, that he will supply for your needs according to the riches of his glory. And he says in Deuteronomy 31 and also in the book of Hebrews that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Concerning all of these future calamities that are coming and we just don't know when, he promises us in Romans 8.28 that all things will work together for the good of those who love him. The Christian never, this is key, think of this, this is so encouraging, the Christian never endures, never merely endures something. You don't walk out of a trial intact. That would be too low of, a, uh, of an accomplishment for the Lord. You walk out of a trial better. Specifically, more like Christ, is what Romans 8, 28, 29 say. You don't merely endure as a Christian. You are, as Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors. He also says concerning future calamities that no weapon formed against you will prosper. He says no weapon against you formed against you will prosper, Isaiah 54, 17. And now the word prosper just means nothing is ever going to get out of hand. At the very beginning of uh, the, the, the Exodus story, Pharaoh looks out at the Jews and says they have prospered. And essentially what he's saying is, is that they're about to get out of hand. There's just going to be too many of them. So this promise in Isaiah isn't that there won't be weapons formed against you. It's just that they won't get out of hand. They'll never overwhelm you. They'll never overtake you. That's his promise to you. Another promise related to future calamities is that you will become a blessing to others because whatever the enemy has meant for evil against you, God will mean it for good and not just for your good, but according to Genesis 50, 20, out of the words, out of the mouth of Joseph, he will cause it to bring about many, that many should be kept alive from the hardships that you face. And finally, we, we need to understand that it is the Father's will. This is from Luke 12, 32 through 34. It is the Father's will to give you the kingdom. Not only will he cause you to endure, he will cause you to overcome. And he is actually turning you in to someone who will rule forever with him on the earth. This week, I revisited a story from, I guess, what you might call modern church history. Uh, in the summer of 1967, a young 17-year-old girl was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay with her friends. And 17-year-old girls being 17-year-olds, she dove into the water, and the water was far more shallow than she realized, and she hit a rock, and she uh, fractured her cervical spine in two places and woke up in the hospital with the news that she was permanently paralyzed from the neck down. And some of you know who I'm talking about. Her name is jo Joni Erickson Tata. And by the way, you can't, you can't pick up a Joni Erickson Tata book and be disappointed, just so you know. There are certain authors where you just 
like, no, it's a, it's a dead ringer. There you go. So here she is. She's 17 years old. Life went from maybe peak optimal, a sweet 17-year-old girl swimming with her friends in the Chesapeake Bay. That sounds pretty wonderful. To maybe peak ter terrible in seconds. I mean, just imagine the, the playfulness and the silliness in her heart as she dove into the water. That feeling, would that feeling ever come back to her? Her whole life changed in seconds and changed considerably for the worst. And so she's in this early period right after the paralyzation of just total despair. I mean, you could say suicidal despair, but friends, there's even a state, and she was in it, where you couldn't even take your own life. That's where she was at. She was actually physically incapable of even taking her own life. At this deep moment of despair, what is the despair? Really what's going on there is she is looking at a future that is utterly, what's the word? I mean, uncertain is, is not the word. How is she, she's 17, how is she going to go through life? And what is life even at this point? Well, during those early days, someone brought a book to her attention. And it was an older book written by a woman who, in Canada, who was an elementary school teacher and also kind of a prolific hymn writer. I think the plan is next week we're going to sing one of this woman's songs. Her name was Margaret Clarkson, and the book that was brought to Joni Erickson Tata was called Grace Grows Best in Winter. Sounds like the kind of book a Canadian could write. But imagine, like, just, just don't lose the picture. You're, you're a quadriplegic, newly quadriplegic 17-year-old girl, and you read these words. The sovereignty of God is the one impregnable rock to which the suffering human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and of the personal, and, and of the personal history of every member of his redeemed family. Later, Joni Erickson Tata would talk about this. See, in her state, control and predictability, you just can't, you just can't imagine how important that would be. Like to know when she goes to this place or that place that there's wheelchair accessibility. And to know that when she gets into a gathering of others that she won't be entirely stared at and singled out. I mean, she has to have someone care for all of her basic bodily functions, so on and so forth. And she says firmly, if you deny your weakness, you will never realize God's strength in you. And so the temptation when we are anxious in the future is to try to accumulate control and deny our weakness. But if you do that, you've cut off the possibility of the adventure of trusting God. You've chosen actually a quite boring and mundane life for yourself. If you can simply sit in your weakness, allow the future to be, yes, uncertain, but not in charge, and say, I have someone who is both willing and able 
to boast about my future. I do not need to hoard control or money or certainty of any kind because I have someone who is certain. And so we saw in Luke 12, the one who is anxious has two options. They will either scramble to a position of faux superiority over the future and they will try to sort of like the bully becomes the bully. The one who's controlled by her fears tries to control the future. Or they will go on an adventure with God and say, I'm just going to trust you. I am persuaded that you are able to keep what I have given you and to preserve it until the day of redemption. This third way, this approach to the future that is adventure allows us to plan without giving into pride. It allows us to save without giving into greed. And it allows us to say along with the hymn writer that Joni Erickson read, Margaret Clarkson, God of creation, all powerful, all wise, Lord of the universe, rich with surprise, maker, sustainer, and ruler of all, we are your children, you hear when we call. God of the ages, though time's troubled years, through time's troubled years, you are the one in whom history coheres. Nations and empires your purpose fulfill, moving in freedom, yet working your will. So I want to take a, a little bit of an extended moment, but I'm, I'm going to introduce communion now. It's going to probably be about five minutes to the worship team, five, minute, five minutes or less. This, more, uh, this week I was in Sioux Falls meeting with a group of pastor friends, and it's always just a, such an encouraging time. And as I was driving through Sioux Falls, my mind, or as driving through South Dakota, my mind went where minds go. I started thinking about David cutting off Goliath's head. That's <laughs> where your mind goes, right? On a long drive, reviewing all the decapitations in Scripture chronologically. You know, there's a, a part of that story I think you'll find very encouraging. I think will persuade you to choose adventure. Uh, when David faced Goliath, he, he stunned him with rocks, as you know, and then approached the stunned, probably unconscious Goliath and pulled Goliath's own giant sword out of its sheath and probably with two hands and just about all the strength he could muster, cut off that giant's head with his own sword. And there's a deeper meaning in that action I think people miss. And it's the same meaning that's at work actually in the Joseph story, for instance. And that is that God is not only able to overcome his enemies, but he is so skilled in sovereign power that he is able to overcome them with the very weapons that they intended to use against his people. So I just want you to use your imagination for a minute and think about that moment. The, the Philistines have this champion, Goliath, this massive man, highly capable of fighting and basically a juggernaut for their military operations. He was sort of the, the F-22 weapon of the Philistine army, you know. And I want you to picture this, this, this thought, like, well, we've got to get this huge man a sword. And so they go to the best forgers, and 
they, uh, they go and say, we, we need a, a sword for this guy. And the blacksmith's like, oh my goodness, okay, I'm going to need a bigger furnace. Um, I, don't, I don't make metal that big. Um, and we're going to need a lot of ore. And so somewhere they go and dig up a bunch of ore that's in the ground for who knows how long. Won't get into that debate right now. And they pull this ore out of the earth and they bring it back. And in this huge furnace, they smelt it and they cast it into this massive sword. And then, you know, this blacksmith, just this, this little Middle Eastern blacksmith, just goes to work with his hammer, flattening this sword out. And then after the sword is flattened out, he goes to work with this file and scrapes the side of that sword. Finish, finish, finish. How many strokes? Everything about that process had the intention of violence against the people of God. And everything about that process was completely under God's sovereign hand. He put that ore there. He allowed that hammer to blow once, twice, three times, thousands of times. Every single stroke of that hammer under God's sovereign will. Every single slide of that file under God's sovereign will. And the enemy is doing all of this with the most malicious intent. While God knows that every single step of that process is intended to sever the head of the one who would actually hold the sword against God's people. Now, that's a principle you will see throughout all of the Bible, but it comes to its peak at the cross, where Jesus literally used death to destroy death. He used shame to destroy shame. He used hatred to destroy hatred. He used the enemy to destroy the enemy. Now, friends, what kind of God do we have that not only overcomes our enemies, but insists on doing so with perfect poetic symmetry? showing that he was never once, not a single one of those hammer blows, whether on Jesus or on the Goliath sword, not a single one of them outside his will, but all perfectly cohering to his majestic sovereign plan to defeat those who oppose his people with their very own weapons. Now, do you really want to be anxious with such a God at your side? Do you really think that hyper-control is the way to go? Is, is worrying about tomorrow a good option? Well, that seems kind of dumb. Is boasting about tomorrow and accumulating some faux lordship over the world the, the plan? Well, that seems kind of dumb too. What seems gloriously inviting is to go on an adventure with God and to see the future that way as uh, I don't actually know how this is going to work out, but I know someone is there, and he is hyper in charge. And so I think I'm going to choose not anxiety, not arrogance, but I think I'm going to choose adventure. I think I'm going to go on an adventure with God. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus and you felt his words stirring your heart today, I just pray that you'd come and celebrate in a tangible way, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you.